What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Alex Gladstein. Alex is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation, as well as the Oslo Freedom Forum. And he's also a faculty member at Singularity University. Alex has been working in human rights for his entire career, and he stumbled upon Bitcoin, or rather, finally went down the rabbit hole in 2016. And since then, he's been a vocal advocate for Bitcoin and, of course, the role that it could play in resolving a lot of the human rights abuses and issues that are going on around the world today. So naturally, having seen Alex speak on stage, having heard him on some other podcasts, I just really wanted to, uh, to have a chat with him. Um, we were a little bit constrained on time here. Alex only had about an hour, so we did have to move a little bit fast. But uh, nevertheless, it was a thoroughly enjoyable conversation and an honor to get to speak with someone who's been doing so much good and important work over the course of their lifetime. Hope you enjoy it. Let's do it. Well, look, man, let's let's jump in. Uh, I really, really appreciate you uh, you taking the time to have a chat with me. Let's do it. I, I think uh, we have about 45 minutes, if that's okay, till about Perfect. four of my time. Yep, that works. Cool. Um, well, in that case, Alex, um, what I wanted to start, I mean, there's obviously a lot uh, that we can and, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about. But one of the things that struck me when I was, um, you know, I've encountered, you know, your content, and your work uh, several times before. think it's great. Love the way you articulate uh, yourself and Bitcoin and how it relates to the work you're doing with, with human rights. Um, but one of the things that struck me is I had a look at your LinkedIn page recently uh -huh. and you got involved with the Human Rights Foundation in 2007, which, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, you were probably just in your early 20s then, right? Yes. So at that young of an age, you know, most of us are coming out of university or gap year after high school or something like that. And, you know, we're, we're not really sure what really sets us on fire, what we want to go out and do in the world. But you got, in, you got stuck in, in this line of work then. And obviously, yeah. you've been there ever since. What was it at that young age that motivated you to be involved in this work? It's a great question. It came down to uh, an event actually that we produced at the Human Rights Foundation called the Oslo Freedom Forum. And I was very involved with the initial uh, vision and production, execution and planning for it. And it was really exciting for me because it allowed me to be kind of on the ground level of something that I knew one day would be a, a really big deal, even as we were just writing the first concept paper because the world didn't have a Davos or TED type arena that would be on the calendar of decision makers, you know, squarely devoted to human rights and civil liberties. It just didn't exist. And we thought it was such an obvious and important thing to do and to be involved in that and get to play a, you know, relatively creative role in helping shape what that would later become was a special opportunity that I, you know, was totally into and and you know lit me on fire basically for many years with with energy and enthusiasm and we were able to grow that <clears throat> conference as one of the hrf programs into something really significant and it's still just an amazing thing that i love being a part of so that was like the first thing that really kept me uh you know let's say up at night um the second thing was a series of um investigations um, into Western celebrities and institutions that were helping dictators. So over the years, I was involved with several significant investigations, uh, research and advocacy initiatives, which looked into and exposed and brought to public attention 
both like think tanks as well as PR companies and celebrities themselves uh, flying out to dictatorships to perform for tyrants uh, or, or, or getting hired by tyrants to work for them and clean up their image. Mm -hmm. So this was another thing that I was very absorbed with, did a lot of writing on, you know, over the years and, and was very, very into and, and had a big impact. And the third thing was our work with North Korea. We started to meet these North Korean refugees and realized that they need a lot of help. And we were able to assist expand their efforts with regard to getting information into North Korea. So those are three main things that I was involved with at HRF in the first decade there that, you know, really inspired me and uh, kept my attention really high. And then in 2016, uh, a friend of ours really was the first one to suggest um, that we take this community we built and some of this uh, disruptive energy and, and connect to the Bitcoin space. Um, so a few months later, we did our first like workshop on the topic and it's, it's been down the rabbit hole ever since for me. So, right. so that was kind of how my interest evolved over time. Mm -hmm. Um, what, you know, and that's, that's great, but I'm wondering, you started off that ex explanation by saying the Oslo freedom for forum as an, as an event was kind mm -hmm. of the first, your first foray into this. Why were you even involved in that? Were you, was human rights an issue for you when you were growing up in high school or did it start in college or like, you know what I mean? What, what seeded this interest for you? Uh, I mean, I was always interested in political science and politics and history. Did a lot of reading as a kid, but it was kind of by chance. Uh, I had an international relations degree I was pursuing and I wanted an internship in the field and I happened to get sort of lucky and get a position at the Human Rights Foundation in the summer of 2007. And at that time, uh, the economy was shaky and it was hard to get jobs, especially in that line of work. So I was really happy to, to get that job. And then I got there and it was very like startup-y, very entrepreneurial. It had just been started, you know, in the previous year or two before. And uh, we had a lot of fun and it really captured my attention. So I joined full-time shortly thereafter and have been working there ever since. Right. And kind of a fun question before we go on here, but regarding, you were saying, you know, you dug into how celebrities are used to clean up images of various, you know, uh, unmentionables around the world or whatever. Yeah. What, what did you uncover in that research? Are there particular celebrities that just sell themselves yeah, like way more than anybody else? Unfortunately, there's a very long line. We used to do a series for Forbes where we where we do like the Oscar goes to and we'd have a list of celebrities that were like doing good things for human rights and then a list of the bad ones. Who, who are most, some of the top? Sure, the most prominent. Offenders. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Mariah Carey is up there. I mean, she she's performed for numerous um, dictators and, and doesn't really seem to have any uh compunction or, or no know, she doesn't really seem to have a problem with it uh, and we, we we've um challenged her several times and it's resulted in probably her doing this less than she normally would um we had a really big one with kanye where he went to kazakhstan uh leo messi went to gabon uh dictatorship in west africa um Nicki minaj there were some things that we were involved in uh hillary swank went to chechnya and uh, Nicolas Cage went to uh, Kazakhstan. And there, there's a whole, J-Lo went to Turkmenistan, and that was a really big one. But many of these things resulted in big, big media campaigns that, that triggered action. So for example, um, J-Lo went to Turkmenistan. We had this huge campaign to get her to stop doing it. Um, 
<laughs> and uh, Howard Stern ended up doing like a whole bit on it, which was obviously listened to by like, whatever, 10 million people or so. And a lot of people learned about Turkmenistan. So these, these are big educational pieces. After the campaign with Leo Messi, he ended up giving all the money he got back to charity. Hillary Swank ended up uh, pledging to give the money away to like Chechen human rights groups. Um, over time, uh, Nicki Minaj actually ended up uh, agreeing with us in this summer, instead of going to perform as she was invited to in Saudi Arabia for the crown prince there, she canceled and wrote a letter saying she's supporting LGBT and women's rights there instead, which mm -hmm. is a huge victory. So, so the program is exciting because it has that kind of uh, impact. Um, but also on like the institutional side, we were involved in exposing and investigating a, a foundation that, that ended up shutting down because it was whitewashing dictators. And there's been a long line of like, track record of success of making a difference in that area. Um, there's been organizations that were overtly about things like peace, but like internally they were working for the North Korean government, things like that. Um, so there's been a long line of investigations that I think have, have made a difference. Well, this is part of the issue today. And of course the internet makes this, you know, <laughs> allows you to pierce the veil to some degree, but you know, whether it's, what you were just re referring to, or, you know, the climate debate or any number of issues, you know, of course, big money around the world is able to fund front organizations with a really nice sounding name. And that does all sorts of work that makes it seem like, you know, there's a, it makes it seem like it's not what it is, you know, so it must be hard to, to, to continuously counter that. And I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but for a lot of the celebrities, I mean, I'm sure they get a lot of money waved at them, and that's obviously their, their, you know, what what compels them to yeah, be it's, involved. Yeah, it's the cash. It's nothing else. They just no, I know. But what I'm what I'm saying is, like, with 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 some of them, it has to be the case that their agent or whomever comes to them and says, "Yo, million bucks to go to to go to Turkmenistan," and I would say that most celebrities have no idea what's going on politically in Turkmenistan, and they just say. Yeah, sure. It sounds like a good gig. And then they get all this outcry about how they're entertaining. Well, that's exactly how it works. But you know what? That's not a good excuse because they should just Google it, right? Um, <laughs> the hypocrisy is that, look, we only would go after people who had pledged to be social justice warriors and human rights warriors. Like they I have see. some I charity see. they've set up in the United States to help um, impoverished communities. And yet they're happy to go perform for a oppressor somewhere else. So a lot of these things were like, hey, you're a spokesperson for human rights for amnesty or something. Why are you doing this? So mm -hmm. we would usually go, you know, we're usually targeting people who claim to be doing good things. If, you're, if your MO is that you're a bad person and you're like a crook, then yeah, go ahead, do your thing. But what we're going for is to expose people who claim to be doing good things in the United States, for example, or in the UK or in Spain, but then they think they can get away with going and, and, and doing this. And that really exposes their you know inner, inner character in many ways right right fair enough i i wonder you know being involved in this type of work obviously you're encountering some of the worst people and situations on earth and you know my own experience and having spoken with a lot of, and interacted with a lot of bitcoiners here on the podcast or on twitter or you know many people generally who have found their way to bitcoin um a lot of us had pretty dystopic views of the world prior to stumbling upon bitcoin because i think a lot of us are fairly well read you know we read about various different industries and governments and history and all that kind of stuff you know um prior to falling down the bitcoin rabbit hole and it seemed like 
you know, a very scary, impossible to turn around sort of trend that, that that's, or, or, you know, level of control, let's say that's manifesting in different ways around the world. And then Bitcoin comes around. And once you, you know, once you can really get some clarity onto the implications of it, you start to see it as a extremely powerful tool for, for lack of a better term, fighting back or for overturning the tide. You know, what was your experience prior to, um, you know, finding Bitcoin and encountering all this darkness in the world and subsequent to, to understanding it more? Yeah, well, I, from the beginning, I always knew that technology was kind of the key. Um, we were looking at my, my summer internship literally was um, in 2007 was like putting backpacks together of movies, Hollywood movies that were dubbed into Spanish and having them sent into the Cuban underground library movement to fight the censorship on the island. Our entire flash drives for freedom program was collecting flash drives and packing them with news and outside information and sending them into North Korea so that people could access <clears throat> and outside opinions and, and it would break the brainwashing that they're subject to there. Um, we were monitoring the dark side as well, of course, with regard to censorship in the great firewall in China at first and later now, of course, the massive big data analysis and AI systems that are, you know, used by the uh, Chinese government to monitor and persecute its population. And for years, we had been working with like groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and different companies to help activists and journalists stay safe online um, through encrypted messaging apps like Signal and VPNs and best practices. So, I mean, Bitcoin's just, you know, it's just the next step. It's just such a logical kind of successor to, to that kind of work, understanding that information is power, number one, and understanding, number two, that defensive technology like encryption is, is really important for defending our freedoms and human rights. And then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're moving into Bitcoin and understanding how pivotal and how key, you know, encrypted decentralized money is permissionless mm -hmm. encrypt, you know, encrypted decentralized money is just so critical for this as well. And so when you first came across it or got more involved in 2016, as you were saying, was it an immediate kind of light bulb moment or did you, no sense sensor no, or something there and go down a long the rabbit hole. from the moment I, like i had first tweeted about bitcoin in like 2014 i had read this piece that mark anderson did mm -hmm. and i was interested but like you know i didn't penny did not drop for a long time i actually lived on a boat with several prominent bitcoiners for a week at a thing called ephemeral i think in 2014 or 15 in san francisco about 80 miles east of the city in the Sacramento River Delta and Brock Pierce and a bunch of other people were there. I remember Brock had brought this like ATM machine and he was trying to convince us that Bitcoin was like this thing that we should be involved with. And uh, some of them, some of the people there were like already really into it, but other people were like very skeptical. And I just, you know, I didn't get it at the time, right? Uh, much to my dismay later. Um, <laughs> but I was certainly like aware of it. Some of my friends threw parties where we'd go and like debate it. I remember this one, it must've been, fall 2015 my friend had this uh, house warm house event at his home in oakland and we were like he brought it was like a debate he brought in somebody to make like the bull case and the bear case for like why you should own it but um even when bill ty who's the guy who, who convinced me to like maybe connect it to the human rights community we had um we finally did this workshop it wasn't really until like the summer of 2017 that i i started to really Go to really get it uh, and 
you know, right after we did this workshop in the spring of 17, obviously the price had gone up past a thousand dollars and there was like a renewed sense of interest. Um, but that summer it got really interesting for me. And then that just began like a now, you know, to an almost three year, um, journey intellectually into learning, uh, about it. And my, the, and you've probably heard a million people say this, but certainly the starting point is Andreas Antonopoulos and his books and videos. Cause those I think resonated for me cause he, he tries to approach it oftentimes from a, from like a human rights kind of a perspective. And, and that was really resonant for me. And I really kind of grasped that. Um, and that was really helpful. He really helped set my framework and it helped the penny drop over time. Um, but again, it's like you reach new levels of understanding every few months or every, every six months with regard to key concepts in Bitcoin. Like, you know, scarce, digital scarcity is something that took a long time for me to appreciate. And I had other people that I learned that from, like Jimmy Song is somebody that, that helped me understand that through watching his videos. And there's all different kinds of people who help you understand different parts of it. So what drove me to try and become an educator in the space was um, the fact that even though we have all these great people like Andreas and Jimmy and others, there's just not enough. There's not enough education and there's not enough people talking about the human side of it. And there's not enough talk people talking about it in a way that's like relatable for the average person. And especially for like the average decision maker. I feel like my, my goal is to, to kind of, engage with the like elite uh, establishment people running universities and banks and um you know newspapers and have them have them start to understand this i think that would be cool so i've been trying to like engage with them especially human rights organizations um so i've been doing that through singularity university for a while uh, i've been doing these like future of money talks um with them across the world for the last few years where I give these like big stage talks about uh, the future of democracy with regard to technology and surveillance and the intrusions on privacy. And then I, I shift to talking about decentralization and Bitcoin and, and what it means for us. Um, and at the end of the day, it's like, we're either gonna have WeChat style money or we're gonna have Bitcoin style money. And, and you gotta kind of choose your side, right? Mm -hmm. So I give these kind of talks and those are always fun. Helped me develop my public speaking and uh, writing ability through doing that over time. And then more recently I've been getting into the actual workshoppy stuff with some really great people in the Bitcoin space. Uh, Jimmy, of course, um, Eric Wall, uh, Matt O'Dell, um, some other people. We are um, looking at how to actually um, think about Bitcoin as a, a, in a serious way in terms of look, if we're going to, if we're going to teach it like we would signal or, how to use VPNs, how to use Tor, like how would you do that most securely? Um, you know, it's not, of course, anywhere close to an anonymous system. There are major risks. You need to keep in mind as you use Bitcoin, but like basically how can you use it as safely as possible? Mm -hmm. And when I first got into the space, there just wasn't the arsenal for doing so really, but there also wasn't really the risk, right? So as chain analysis has gotten more popular um, and more, I think we're only at the sort of, tip of the iceberg with regard to how much more pervasive it'll get. Um, so have the tools to fight back. So like BTC pay server, like didn't exist two years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. So I mean, now activists and NGOs have a thing like the human rights foundation does where you can just go to our website and you can kind of more privately make a donation without us exposing and de de anonymizing you. Right. 
Um, Lightning is taking off in a way that I, I hope we'll start engaging with that too on our site. But obviously, like I do it in a recreational way, but Lightning's kind of getting there. And that to me is really important because it really hurts the ability of people using chain analysis, right? Um, because in a world where like most of our transactions are, most of our small daily transactions are all off chain in the second layer that's like onion routed. Um, yeah, that's really interesting to me. So um, <clears throat> I really think about it like lightning is digital cash and Bitcoin is digital gold and these two systems work together. And I think that's kind of where we're headed. And, and you know, that was obviously very nation, like didn't, didn't exist uh, as, a, as an operating system, as a protocol when I, when I was first thinking about this. So now we kind of have the tools. We, we, we have more popular use of mixing coin joins, other things like that. There's even some really interesting stuff like pain ins and things like that. So a lot of it's like too clumsy and too clunk clunky to use for people who don't know what Bitcoin is. Mm -hmm. So the job of the engineers over the next five years is going to be to obfuscate that stuff, just like we did with email, like P writing PGP is a pain for a lot of people. So something like signal makes that a lot easier, even though there's like trade-offs. Okay. It's attached to a phone number. So we're going to have to find the right trade-offs and people are going to have to make the right building decisions. Mm -hmm. But the fact is there's just like this arsenal of new like privacy technology coming out for Bitcoin, which is really, really helpful and uh, makes me feel like we're going in the right direction. You know, this whole taproot thing that's coming out, like it's just really going to help. Super exciting. I mean, yeah. just this basic idea that it'll really help make all kind of transactions look really similar and it'll just encourage people to do more things like opening lightning channels, multi-sig, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot coming just in the near future that's quite exciting. Um, and then at the end of the day, that's kind of proceeding from an engineering perspective. But meanwhile, like most people aren't even to step one. Like it was, it took me two years to get to the point where I could appreciate something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Or even more. Let's start with like understanding the problems with the money system and why there needs to be digital scarce money um, and why it's, really important for us to develop money that's not controlled by governments and corporations as we shift to a cashless society like that that's that would be an if people could understand that piece mm -hmm. right there that's enough then they're going to be warm and open but that piece takes a lot of explanation sure and everybody's packed with this like you know i give these lectures to ceos and they're it's all they're like pre-programmed with this like uh like anti-bitcoin thing where they're like it's too volatile it's for criminals it's boiling the oceans, all these. And they're like, literally every time I speak to a new batch, of completely unrelated CEOs, they, they just, it's like a machine on repeat. And they have these like, you know, again, like it's like the prepackaged arguments that they got from who knows where. Um, but that you realize that the media coverage of Bitcoin from 2012 2013 onwards has been really effective at turning people off of it really effective and yeah it's been really really effective at turning the average person away from bitcoin and away from the cryptocurrency or blockchain space more generally usually but then the more interesting or like more open-minded people then they get into like blockchain or cryptocurrency and it's like they're even worse off so it's like um, it, it's, it's, you, you realize how powerful the media has been in terms of their misinterpretation or, or perhaps like malicious interpretation of, of what Bitcoin is. Yeah. Um, and it continues. There was some reporter, this woman who writes for the financial times, she wrote an article saying like linking, trying to link coronavirus to Bitcoin the other day. <laughs> and yet and she works at the most prestigious 
financial magazine in the English speaking world, right? So that, that's how juvenile we are still. Yeah. Um, and ironically, you know, she and the others, uh, Martin Wolf and all the others at the FT, they always like to skewer uh, Bitcoin. But you know what? Bitcoin's coming for the system that they're defending. You know what I mean? So exactly. So, so it's coming for them, whether they like it or not. You know, Martin Wolf, I remember he wrote this column saying, you know, um, you know, let's it's something like, um, you know, money needs a rule system. And, um, you know, we, we need rules with money and all this stuff like governments need to control it. And, you know, just the general central banker speak. And it's like, yeah, he's going to be very scared of what's coming. Sure. But, like, but in general, like what I'm saying, I guess, is that it, it, it's it takes a long time. There's many steps to unlocking your understanding of Bitcoin and the more educational materials we can put out, the better, because it will take people a long time to figure out why this is key and important and to link it to like why it matters. And in the engineering is, is not, it's a slow process, like mm -hmm. these, these upgrades in the network and these user design improvements are, are not instantaneous. They do take years. So I think that it, development is just going to be slower than I thought um, maybe two years ago, but, but I think in a positive way, like, I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. Well, that's no why I appreciate no reason why it should advance too quickly or too radically. I agree. And, and this is why I appreciate, you know, people like you who came in, you know, when you were saying all that, I thought like someone first entering Bitcoin, it's almost like they're running through like a war zone, dodging bullets and landmines and stuff because you've got to dodge the FUD and you got to be not pulled in the direction of, well, you know, greed and you've got to dodge. No, I, the, but forget that stuff. That's fine. The worst is like, I'm trying to stare at this like YouTube video explainer of what a blockchain is done by like Harvard or like, and it's That's just what I, well, so yeah, misinf misinformation of all kinds. Sure. And like you look at it later. Now that I actually understand, you look back in time. It's like now that I've completed my undergraduate degree, right? <laughs> like I look back at it and it's just a bunch of nonsense. Like it's describing the functions of Bitcoin, but it doesn't use the word Bitcoin. And it's claiming that all blockchains do this. It's just massive, just disinformation. Right. Packaged up in a neat little kind of like um acceptable uh easy to swallow format you know well like you said about the you know whether they're at the financial times or jp morgan or legacy financial system you know this i forget the precise uh, verbatim of that quote saying like you know it's hard for someone to understand something when their income depends on not understanding it you know so you have all these people <laughs> in the legacy system they don't want change it's working really well for them and so when they you know, they hear all this blockchain brouhaha and they're like, oh, well, we got to we don't want to seem like we're, uh, you know, behind the times. We've got to integrate this in some capacity. But very quickly, I assume at least someone in those organizations realized that it can't be Bitcoin because Bitcoin disrupts the vast majority of uh, the, a lot but, of the stuff that they're yeah, doing. But here's the thing, dude. It can be. If you look at companies like Square. I mean, they get it, right? Like they're, they're in, they have an internal nonprofit. Well, sure, and that's the way to do it. That's the way to do Square it. Square that's like developing a toolkit for Lightning developers. Like that's amazing. So right, right. there are some companies like Fidelity, Square, um, and many others that understand it and they want to introduce their customers to this concept. Um, and, but and for others, they're looking for a way that's, you know, the blockchain way because it's a little bit more neat and it can be controlled better and, you know, it ticks the boxes that's, and it sounds that's, that's great. That's all going to fail. We know that sure. because of the Oracle problem and garbage data in, garbage data out. That stuff's not going to be helpful. Right. Um, and then you're, you're seeing now how, how just 
disingenuous and damaging all the ICOs have been um, to the retail people who bought the coins at the at the hundred percent got totally smoked. So it's been great for all the angel investors and people who got in early. Like the best example of this is um, this total scam project called Algorand that was totally whitewashed by a professor who works at MIT. So these scientists, they're called professor coins. They come out with a project and because they're at Cornell or MIT or whatever, they get this like um, protective coating, this like Teflon where they, they, they're sort of like untouchable because they're like smart and scientists and they work for some you know, prestigious institution. Well, this guy, Silvio um, Mercalli, I think is his name, uh, he is teaching at MIT and he was able to sort of probably without asking, you, you know, the MIT name was used to whitewash Algorand and to sell it to a bunch of early investors who got in at like five cents, 10 cents, whatever, uh, in the spring of 2008. And then they did the like public auction and you know the price one this price was like set at like two dollars 2008 you mean yeah this was a late ico i'm not even going back to i'm going you mean 2018 sorry 2018 i'm sorry that sorry 2018 yeah so spring of 2018 and um so a full year after the 2017 craze people were still doing it and um yeah like the price went up to two dollars i think in june and then you know, they tried to ha- set this thing up where it's like, this is how, compli- how, how complicated these schemes are to try and just t- take advantage of people. Um, they were like, oh, well, you can only take out one 720th of the funds every day for like two years. And therefore, like, it's impossible for people to dump and it gives commitment. Well, what was happening is like these people were like entering into these like SAFT agreements, which then they would sell. So they, yeah, they weren't selling their funds off the chain, you know? Um, so all these people who got in at like five cents, 10 cents, they were getting out at the top and those were being, those shares or whatever were being gobbled up by retail investors who got smoked as the asset went all the way down. And then here we are, uh, in almost February, 2020 and the price of Algorand is, um, 24 cents, right? So look, all the, look, all the people who got in early, are still even they if even if they're holding now they're they're fine because they got into five to ten cents right mm-hmm. so that they, they're at three or four x or whatever but most people bought it like two bucks yeah. they're toast man it's, hor- it's horrible i so, mean it's- so that's like just a really good uh, i love telling that story because it encapsulates the whole ico craze it's got the you know reputable institution whitewashing the project it's got the you know uh, scheme to show people that it can't be a pump and dump. Um, It's got people still defending it to this day. Oh, we have this vibrant developer community. Like, yeah, right. Um, And, and then, but the, all you need to look at is the price chart for for these things. I mean, it's just so obvious that it, it peaks immediately, then it crashes and people used it to make a lot of money that that's like what this was functionally for. Um, and it wouldn't be so bad if that's what they admitted, if they were to admit that, yes, this was a machine that we invented literally to enrich ourselves at the expense of others uh, and, and provide no value to society. As long as they were willing to say that and put that on their shirt and wear around and, and be happy about that, then I'm good. I'm like, okay, cool. Good, good for you. Um, at least you're acknowledging that. But they walk around as if they're like contributing something positive to the world. And it's really freaking frustrating. Mm-hmm. 
So trying to steer new entrants, not only away from stuff like that, which has a huge marketing budget and you know, you start to enter this space and you're pushed towards stuff like that, as opposed to Bitcoin, which doesn't have a marketing budget, doesn't have a company pushing it. Right. And then you're like, then you got a net. So you're, you're, you're first, you're like, as you were describing, you're in this like rat race, like this maze. And like the first obstacle are the ICO and all like the professor coins. And then, okay, fine. You get around that. And then you've got the Bitcoin like forks. You've got the Bitcoin cashers and BSV people. And you got to like figure out why those things are scams also. And then you're like, okay, well, what about the blockchain stuff? And then you got to figure that out. And then it's like, you go all the way down to realize that, that really this whole thing is about the separation of money from state and about the fundamental changing nature in the world of the relationship between the government and the individual when it comes to money and the economy. That's what this is about. This is not about decentralization or technology really right. this is about the way money is the way it exists now the way it existed previously and the, what it will be in a hundred years that's what this is all about and that's like that's the thing that takes so long to figure out yeah and but just i want to ask you some two, two follow-ups but just on that you know once you get through that you know that war zone once you first come into bitcoin <laughs> it's like totally a war zone dude. right but if you make it to the end you're like and you know maybe very few do that start at the top most of the people funnel. give up most people take they take the exit off sure they get off the whatever they get off the altcoin ramp at whatever point and they you, stay there you and i are, are an example of if you make it through you become a hardened hodler you get it you know it you see it with you know a great high degree of clarity and you just, you, you stay around and you can make, you know, this is what the boom and bust of Bitcoin seems to have been like. It, people come in, they get burnt. Some people stay because they get it and the cycle repeats. But I want to ask you two questions that you mentioned a, a few minutes ago about, you know, in your line of work, you'll rub shoulders with, you know, policymakers, politicians, you know, bankers, this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, one, as you just said, this is about separating money from state. Yes. And when you you know, when you're mingling with these people or giving yes. talks or whatever, and you say that to the type of people that the current circumstance largely has benefited them, it's working for them, and they're probably not uh, that interested in separating money from state. First of all, when you tell them that, that it's Bitcoin, not blockchain, and this is what Bitcoin is about, what is their reaction? And number two, amongst your colleagues and people that work with you, how many of them get that that this you know of course there's human rights issues all around the world and policies are part of it but how many of them get that the the, the foundational component of the money is what's that's what's the, the linchpin here the way i would the way i try to prefer to go after it is that i guide the conversation in a positive way let them ask the questions and then we go along so if I were teaching a class and designing a syllabus for a like a college course, a year-long college course, we would just spend the first month just discussing, or maybe two months, just discussing the creation of Bitcoin, why it was created, how does it work, et cetera. And like when students would ask questions about other stuff, we would just say, we're going to get to that later in the course. Okay. So when I do my public speaking, I just, I'd only, I only talk about Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, I do, I do talk about like, see like the central bank digital currencies i talk about libra i talk about like obviously centralized um competitors but i don't really in the my main talks i'm not going to get into the other cryptocurrencies or the other blockchain tech um 
I find I'd rather have a message of positivity than like just getting up there and like criticizing other people's projects. I'll have happy to do it on a, a podcast with you, but I'm not going to do, I'm not going to devote my time to that. Um, uh, I'm not like a consumer protection advocate, you know what I mean? Like that's not my full-time job. Other people should be doing that. Right. But I would, I would design the course in a way where like, hopefully you, you really get Bitcoin first. And then we go in and we describe what's, what's happening in the space and you can use what you've learned to understand why these other projects um, are different. Look, some of them may be really valuable. Like yeah. some of the, I mean, this seems unlikely at the moment, but let's just put it this way. Some of the privacy tech being developed by the very committed people working at Zcash, Monero, et cetera, some of that stuff may end up getting pulled into like uh, second layer technology on Bitcoin, for example, sure, later sure. on. And they're like very committed to private money. And I'm right there with them. I just, I kind of disagree on what the substrate will be. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I respect their work in a way that, that it, I don't really respect, you know, most people working on altcoins, right? Um, but, but like you start, then you can start to understand, okay, you can even look at like projects like IPFS or Ethereum. And then with that Bitcoin knowledge, you can then look at like, okay, like what did these people set out to do? Why are they having trouble accomplishing it, et cetera? And it gives you a little bit of a better foundation for understanding that. And then you can go into the digitization of fiat money. You can go into the digitization of corporate money and you can really start to understand like why these things may go they may explode in popularity because people are always willing to trade their privacy for convenience mm -hmm. and to understand how dangerous that stuff is absolutely but it's only with like the understanding of bitcoin that you really start to get all the other stuff in the proper uh in the proper framework right i i agree so you know basic maybe the question is better. so again so when i'm talking to like a banker or somebody i usually just i'm like yeah bitcoin x and they're always like well what do you mean bitcoin don't you mean like all crypto like tell me more and then okay, I'll stop and I'll I'll, I'll usually break it down into, into three reasons for them. I I talk about the reason why Bitcoin's special. It's it's decentralized. We don't know who created it. It has right. um, a you know fixed monetary supply, uh, so it's digitally scarce. Which and is what's the, the response thing. to this explanation and, when you give then, it? Yeah, so I talk about the decentralization. I talk about the fact that it's digitally scarce and its value goes up over time. And I talk about the third important thing, which is liquidity and network effect. So. Um, you know, I'll go and I'll explain each of those things and how it sets Bitcoin apart and how mm -hmm. other projects can't just like create that. Um, and, you know, usually that helps a little bit, but I mean, after one lecture, people leave with a lot more questions than they have answers. My job is just to light the fire of curiosity. If I can get them fired up about one thing or another, I've done my job. They may leave being a massive Bitcoin skeptic, but great, they're going to go and like read about it, right? chances are they're going to stumble across something that just leads them further down the rabbit hole. So when I talk to like establishment folks, um, that's my goal is to like get them to, to realize that there's something here to like dig into, you know? Right. So these people it, to explain Bitcoin to somebody in, in a way. Of course, of course. I, the, I was just trying to see if people in these circles of power and influence or whatever, they're receptive to what Bitcoin represents. You know, if not understanding fully when you first speak to them or they first watch a speech. Yeah, very rarely because KYC and AML have been sold to the masses as like a really positive thing that keeps our society safe. So when I tell them that there's going to be a money system that's permissionless and parallel and not policeable as much, they're not into that. It's not something they're excited about. Now, it's a, but I never, that's not how I would pitch it. I would say, hey, imagine you're a refugee coming out of Syria or Venezuela and you could bring your wealth with you without having to 
get frisked at the border or imagine that you are a woman in a society like Afghanistan, you can actually hold your value without your male family members taking it from you. Or imagine you are living in China and all of your financial activity is surveilled. Well, what if you could like have a store of value that you only you had sovereignty over? So when I lead with those examples, they're eating it up and they get it. It's only later that we get into the disagreements, right? Yeah. So again, I don't, I, I try not to dwell on the negative um, in my talks. I try to, I try to be really clear about the negative is China's DCEP project. That's what we need to be afraid of is these like digital centralized state cryptocurrencies that will replace cash and make surveillance a lot more pervasive. That's like what we're up against. And thankfully we have a tool to fight back. Like yeah. If Bitcoin didn't exist, we would be toast, you know, completely toast. And what, what's the distinction as far as, you know, obviously this is a trend, you know, governments authoritarian and democratic around the world are exploring cryptocurrencies for their national currencies now. What's the difference between a digital dollar and a, a crypto dollar? Like what's, you know, not, it's not, I'm not talking about physical cash. I'm talking about like a WeChat RMB or yeah, I mean, it's, Venmo it's, dollar. What's the difference? I mean, if you just think about a basic interpretation of describing money in a society, like with M0, M1, et cetera, obviously each, every, each time you go up the ladder, uh, the money supply gets bigger. So like M1 is bigger than M0, M2 is bigger than M1. And it's all done on like credit and borrowing. And, and, and that's obviously been an engine for growth for our society for a long, long time. And I don't expect that to change. However, what will, what will change is M0. So today M0 is still in large part, in huge part in some countries, in small part in others, but always in part physical notes. And, and those do provide people with like some privacy uh, with actually a really high degree of privacy. Um, again, even in like advanced societies, like there's still a lot of cash usage. It's, it's way down from what it was. It's could be 5% in some places, 10%, 30%, but it's, it's, it's usually lower than 50% in an advanced democracy and closer to 10% in a lot of places. Um, in more rural areas, it's 75%, you know, 80%, but generally speaking, it's all disappearing. So once you realize that the transition that's happening is that that M0 is, is, is going to, over the next decade, through adoption, um, encouragement, and eventually uh, bans. Like eventually there's going to be like a thing in countries where there's a demonetization process where governments say, hey, um, you, you have the next 18 months to hand in any paper notes that you want to get digital credits for and people will hand them in right away. There'll probably be a sliding scale saying you get 100% of your value if you hand it in now and right, 10% right. if you wait a year. So the government's gonna like aggressively get paper and um, metal money out of the hands of people. And then after that window's over, it'll be illegal to hold that stuff and it won't be redeemable by banks. So like this is gonna happen in the next 10 years. So we have to get out ahead of it and like make sure our systems are in place before that stuff goes down. Totally agree. But, but so my, what you know, what I was wondering, and it perhaps the answer is just that it transitions everybody. So let's take China, for example. Mobile payments are enormous. There's still cash in, in the society, but most people under the age of 40 or whatever transact almost exclusively in WeChat and Alipay. Um, is, is the transition to a, a crypto RMB just to make to put to eliminate cash effectively because right because my the original question was what's the difference between a database that's digital rmb versus a crypto rmb 
But I guess the difference is that once it moves to a crypto RMB, physical cash is not even possible. And it just, it's more well, all encompassing. It's actually, there's a lot of angles to it. There's a lot of reasons why a government would, would want to digitize its base money. Um, but I'll give you an example. By doing so, you would then have the potential to have a direct relationship between the central bank and the citizen. So uh, it just gives like tighter control. Today, like even in China and the police state, like a lot of citizens use WeChat for their payments, right? right? So if I'm the Chinese government, I wanna spy on you and you're using WeChat, I have to go to Tencent, the parent company, and ask for your information, right? There's like a layer uh, in between, which functionally speaking, I can break down, but like is annoying. Like I would rather just like have real time surveillance of your transactions. So if the base money is is indeed like um, monitorable in that way, and there are ways to tie that base money to the credit above it that's being distributed by commercial banks, et cetera, it gives the government a much better idea of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of what I would say. Yeah. Uh, it, it just gives you a foundation to build a much more trackable system. Whereas today, like commercial banks and technology companies, even in a police state like China, you know, are sectioning off parts of the economy and the government can't really see what's going on without asking. Um, so they want, they don't want to have to ask. The other thing it does is it like allows them to push the button on like big financial um, initiatives. So for example, if there's like a downtrend in like the auto industry, imagine just being, they could just like push a button and deposit some credits into every auto worker to like get them to chill out, you know? Right. So they can't do that today. So they would have like this huge database of everybody's accounts and they just have direct interactivity with that. Wow. I think that's like their goal. Now, I don't know. There may be like economic and technical reasons why they can't pull that off. Um, and I'm sure there, there are considerable obstacles, but that's like their stated goal is to establish something like that. Now, again, same thing with social credit. Like we know what their stated goal is, but unclear if it'll actually get there. Um, so we'll see, but it, it is a major difference. Uh, digitizing the base money is, is, is a really big deal. I mean, it really, really, really removes privacy and freedom and, and it gives them just a much better understanding of what's going on in the economy and a much, much better way of controlling um, everything, especially from like the edge cases where people actually do need a little bit of freedom and privacy. Yeah, Alex, um Listening to you speak throughout the course of this conversation, you know, and knowing the work you've done, you know, being critical of, you know, the nastiest people around the world. Yeah. How, how does this affect? Well, I'm sure it affects your travel to some degree. You're probably on some blacklists in certain countries. But <laughs> do you do you feel any sense of anxiety, paranoia, anything like that of being so vocally against people that you've seen commit, you know, some? I'm not. I mean, I have to be a little careful about where I go. Um, I'm not planning to go to China anytime soon, for example. Right. Um, although probably for a different reason than most people at, at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, I just have to be a little careful. Obviously, the career choices I've made will dictate kind of like where where I can go and that sort of thing. But no, I think it's like there are other people who are way more visible than me who who are going to bear the brunt of whether it's the Saudis or the Russians or the Chinese, like. There's people like Bill Browder and Gary Kasparov and Pussy Riot that that are that are like you know they're they're the front line or obviously people like Jamal Khashoggi or activists in Saudi or Bezos who are pushing against Saudi Arabia they're kind of on the front line and then you know with China there's all kinds of um, dissidents and journalists and whistleblowers um, so I'm I'm like happy to operate like behind the front lines a little bit, uh, right. but certainly, certainly aware of what's going on. Yeah. 
Um, one final question, Alex, and then I, I have the rapid fire part. Do you have another Great. 10 minutes? Um, five minutes? Yeah, like five minutes is fine. Okay. You'll have to be concise with your, with your answers then, or, or, or yeah. just pass over. But the, the last question before the rapid fire I wanted to ask you was just that, you know, today in the political landscape, the rhetoric is very, you know, there's been a lot of rhetoric that uh, expands the definition, let's say, of human rights for certain people. So housing is a human right. And, you know, hate, hmm. not, not uh, being is. victim to hate speech is a human right. How do you feel, you know, having had, you know, or having worked in this capacity yeah. where you, you a very real sense of a human rights or when people you end up dying in certain countries or being killed or murdered, how do you feel about this expansion of the term? Well, I think you need to look back to the creation of the Universal Declaration, Declaration of Human Rights after World War II. And you'll need to look at the compromise made between the democratic United States of America and the totalitarian Soviet Union. And the U.S. wanted like civil liberties um, to be ingrained into this document. And the Soviet Union wanted entitlements to be ingrained in that document. Now, <laughs> what, what country did you think did a better job of entitlements over time? Well, obviously the United States, not the Soviet Union. And meanwhile, the Soviet Union had zero uh, civil liberties, right? So what dictatorships always seek to do is dismiss civil liberties and say, we don't need them anyway, we're providing, you know, housing and education and everything to our people for free. The reality is they're not, they're lying, they're starving their people, there's cholera outbreaks, there's all kinds of stuff. But because they've been able to get rid of the civil liberties and the journalism and the free press, nobody knows. So it's like kind of like this great lie that they set up. Um, now, I'm like very actually a progressive person, I believe the government in a, in a good government that is constrained in a reasonable way should be focusing on how to help the most vulnerable. Um, however, I think that the bedrock for that is, is uh, civil liberties and civil rights, not entitlements first. So like in, and you can just see this borne out, like in the countries that have the most free press and you know, the most commitment to things like uh, freedom of association, property rights, et cetera, you have the most robust social welfare systems. Um, you look across Europe, you look across democratic Asian and Latin American countries. It's the countries that have high degrees of free press and human rights that also have like better um, actual, like verifiable entitlements uh, for people. And that's, that's something that's really important. Like whether you care about peace or global health or, um, you know, helping the bottom 10% or inequality or whatever you care about, like it's, again, it's the, the countries that are like more like liberal democracies that that are handling those things much better mm -hmm. and you can just look at the top 20 liberal democracies in the world versus the bottom 20 dictatorships and you can just look at like uh entitlements and right right to housing right to food all that stuff and like guess where you'd want to live like there's there's a sure. reason why 95 percent of refugees are fleeing dictatorships and trying to go to democracies right and they're not seeking um you know, like constitutional democracy. They want, they want food on the table for their family and a job opportunity. So um, it goes in one direction. So that's like actually a really important thing. So I, I'm a civil rights and civil liberties person. That's what I've devoted my career to. I'm very interested in and in supportive of societies that either through public-private partnership or through a government program that's properly controlled by the citizens, um, providing welfare, I think it's quite important in different areas and different ways. And that's probably where I would disagree with some of my Bitcoin brethren. Um, but, um, and I believe that stuff can exist in a Bitcoin society for sure. Um, so but when I, we, I, when, but, when, but, but to cap it off, so yeah, like I'm someone who, who, who's fighting the, the fight for negative rights or whatever you want to call them, uh, civil liberties. 
And, you know, I'm suspicious deeply of anyone who's dismissive of those things and, and just jumps straight to entitlements. Which would be housing as a human right or something like that? Well, usually, you know, and usually people say that and then they're using that to dismiss other civil liberties. So you want to be really careful about like. Well, that's kind of what I meant. Like the, 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 right. the, like, the political okay, rhetoric, the political rhetoric in the U.S. today, you know, many people on the perhaps further left of the spectrum say things like, you know, housing is a human right. But many of their, you know, their policy goals seem to encroach on a right of free speech, you know, because of, you know, feelings Dude, everybody's hate speech guilty. and stuff like that. On the right, you had all these people who want this massive national security state with all this war. And they're like, basically, war is a human right. So everybody's taking money from the average person and spending it on malicious things, mm -hmm. regardless of where you are on the political spectrum. Um, so I was just wondering um, about how that made you feel because you operate in a fairly, you know, a scope of trying to protect human rights in, in a very, where, where the abuses of such are li literally life and death yeah, and in, a, again, in the I West it being. The, the, is, is X a human right or not? It's a tiresome debate. There was a good piece on is access to the internet a human right done by Vince Cerf. And he's like, well, would, did, did, in 1890, did we consider like access to a horse, a human right, like horse and carriage? Um, so these things are going to change over time. You want, like, I think the U.S. Constitution is a fabulous document. I think the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is a really good document. We should mm -hmm. use these as our guiding stars as we create societies. Um, and just be suspicious of anyone who says that, um, you know, government must do X. Right. Just make sure it's legit. I mean, there are a lot of very legit things that government needs to do. But let's just make sure we can, like, audit them properly as citizens and that we have control over them and not the other way around. Got it. All right, Alex, this is the last part. I'll skip over the rapid fire questions and I usually just end with a quick word association. It'll take 10, 15 seconds. Yeah. You ready to go? So I'll, I'll say a word. You just tell me the first thing that comes to your head. Sure. Democracy. Freedom. The Lightning Network. Scaling Bitcoin. Government. Uh, the worst form of social construct we have except for all the others. Human rights. The foundation for our society. Violence. The darkest underbelly of humanity. Ego. Something that needs to be constrained. Greed. Something that needs to be admitted and then built around. Wealth. Something that is built by people for future generations. Privacy. Probably the most important value to consider in the next hundred years for humans. Hate speech. Something that's in the eye of the beholder. Gold. A valuable metal that will decrease in value in the next hundred years. Guns. A very tricky topic. Revolution. Something that you want to be peaceful if you want to be effective. Socialism. Usually a very bad idea. Family. A very important thing for any human. Inequality. Something that dictatorships are particularly good at inflicting upon their population. Hell. Um, I'm not a particularly religious person. Liberty. A guiding value for our society. Energy something that 
powers us and that we need to study very carefully and make sure that the energy that we use is as least harmful to our environment as possible moving forward. And finally, Bitcoin. It is freedom money. Awesome. Alex, we're seven minutes over. I really appreciate the time. Is there anyone or anywhere you wanted to shout out uh, before we finish up here? Uh, just, you know, my colleagues at the Human Rights Foundation, all the amazing work they do for vulnerable people uh, around the world. Awesome. And if people want to get in touch with you, you're on Twitter, you're... Yeah, just my last name, Gladstein on Twitter. You can check us out at href.org. Definitely check out the Oslo Freedom Forum. Tickets go on sale pretty soon for our big event in Norway on May 25th to 27th. It's a fabulous event, so I would check it out if you can. Awesome, man. Well, look, keep up the great work. Really appreciate the time, and uh, I'll speak to you at some point in the future, I'm sure. All right, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care, brother. Take care.